you'll turn to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be diving back into a series entitled Slaves to Sons. Uh, we're going through the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, I should say. And so I want to encourage you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. We took a little bit of a break because of Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. Um, but now we're going to jump back in. And just to give a little bit of a recap, if you are just now joining us and you don't know what's been going on with the first couple of chapters, let me just give you a quick recap of what's happened and the reason why this letter is being written. The Apostle Paul uh, was a missionary. He became a missionary after he had been persecuting the church. He became an apostle for Christ Jesus. And he began a missionary journey through all through Roman, different Roman provinces. And one of those provinces was the region of Galatia. And in this region, he started a number of, ch of churches. He was sharing the gospel, and many people wanted to hear. And so these were new converts to Christianity who were from uh, Gentile-speaking and Gentile nations. Um, they were not Jews, in other words. These were people from various other nations and people groups who were trusting in Jesus as their Lord and Savior because they had heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul. He had preached it, and they had received what, uh, what, what they were hearing. And so Paul was able to establish a number of churches throughout this province of Galatia. But the problem was once he moved on and once he went on to other places, some Jewish Christians, some Jew, what we call Judaizers, because they were coming in and telling people, no, 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 what you heard from Paul, that's not right. Uh, you know, that's too easy. You know, it, it's too easy to just accept Jesus by faith. Instead, these Judaizers came in behind Paul, and they began telling these new babes in Christ, no, what you've got to do is you've got to be circumcised as the first step in your salvation. That's got to be the first step is, is circumcision. Where Paul had been telling them that Jesus had done the work for them on the cross, he had died for their sins, and they are uh, to trust in him by faith that he has done the work. But what these Judaizers were telling them was that they had to be circumcised. And if, if they were telling them they had to be circumcised as the first step, or I, maybe I should say first snip, uh, then from that point on, nobody got that joke, that's fine. Um, from that point on, they would then need to continue with all of the Old Testament requirements, all of the Jewish laws, all of the Mosaic laws. That had been given. And so if circumcision, circumcision was the first step for us to have salvation in Christ, uh, in, in God, um, then uh, circumcision was the first step, but then there were all the other requirements as well. And so the Judaizers were pushing sort of a works-based religion back on top of the gospel. And that doesn't work. And we've seen that doesn't work. And the problem is that we continue to do this to this day. That a lot of times we trust in Jesus by faith, but then we try to live out our salvation through works, through the law. Uh, now we do works because we have been graciously saved, but those works don't add anything to our salvation. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so Paul is addressing this controversy in his letter, and he spends the first couple of chapters talking about it from a personal standpoint. 
that he himself, he received the Holy Spirit, and he received grace, and he received the gospel, uh, not by the traditions of man, but by a revelation from God himself through Jesus Christ. And, and then he talks about a few anecdotes of how even the Gentiles, or, or, or sort of even some of the apostles, had gotten some things wrong, and they had to be corrected. Peter himself had to be corrected in his understanding of the gospel. Thank the Lord that he heard what Paul had to say and that he, he did uh, agree that the gospel had been brought to the Gentiles just as much as it had been to the Jews. And so what Paul is doing in chapter 3 is he's laying out an argument to these new Christians for why they don't need to trust in the law. They need to trust in Jesus Christ alone. They need to trust in faith, that, that it's their faith in Jesus Christ that saves them, not the works of the law. You don't need circumcision as your first step of salvation, and you don't need sacrifices, and you don't need ceremonies, and you don't need rituals, and you don't need works-based religions. You don't need the, the, uh, you know, the rigid following of the law to be saved. No, these Gentile believers, they have been saved by faith. And so Paul is laying out this argument. And so as we look at Galatians 3, we're going to start in verse 10 and read through verse 18. And then we're going to come back and unpack Paul's argument. It says in verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Okay, that's a great reason why you don't go under the works of the law. Uh, don't rely on that. He says, because it is written, <clears throat> everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. He says, now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things, in other words, these laws, will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Amen. Let's bow for prayer just as we ask the Lord to help us understand his word. Father, we bow before you once again, this time just really asking that you would help us to approach your word with humility, recognizing that, that we don't know everything but we also approach your word with gratitude, 
thanking you that you have revealed these truths for our benefit and so that you might be glorified through them. And so we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. Lord, we may have misconceptions about Scripture. Lord, help us, help me, never to approach Scripture as if I've got everything figured out. But enable us, Lord, to approach this with humility, recognizing that there may be some ways in which I have allowed the works of the law or a reliance on the law to guide me rather than allowing the Spirit of God to guide me into all truth. And so I pray, Lord, that you would guide us into all truth as it pertains to this passage of Scripture this morning. Help us to apply this truth to our lives and to live according to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to begin by talking about the law's curse. The law's curse. We read in the first few verses here in verse 10 and 11 that all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now that doesn't mean that the law was not given by God. And that doesn't mean that the law did not serve a purpose or that the law was the curse. The law was not the curse. But if you rely on the law, you are under a curse. And in next, the next passage, uh, later on in chapter 3, that we'll get to, Lord willing, we'll get to next Sunday, um, we'll talk about the purpose of the law and why it was given and, and kind of give a, a fuller explanation of the benefit of the law and why, why we even have the law. Why did Moses even have the Ten Commandments? Why do we even to this day have the law in our Bibles? But, but for today, um, we're going to talk about what happens when you rely wholly and, and, and completely on the law. It, it says very plainly in verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And, and, and here's why. He gives the example right away. He says, everyone uh, who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. That's according to Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. So again, the law itself is not a curse. All right? But if you rely on doing good works and, and doing and fulfilling the law, like in, a, in other words, if you are such a stickler for, uh, for obeying the law, then guess what? You're going to fail somewhere. And that's Paul's point. And, and that's the point of the law that, that, again, we'll get to a little bit later, is that the point of the law is to, to, to be our schoolmaster. It's, it's to teach us what we should and should not do. But guess what? You're going to fail. There's going to be some point of the law that you do not fulfill. And there was a whole system of religious people in the first century that Paul was addressing. There were religious leaders, Jewish people, who were slavishly trying to follow the law to the letter. Of course, they were missing the spirit of the law, but, but, but they were doing their best to do every single requirement, and they would lift themselves up as if they were the most holy of all the people, and, and yet even they were missing certain things. So again, the law itself is not a curse. The law was a blessing, and it was given by God for a purpose, 
that we'll talk about next week. But if you don't keep every instance of the law, if you don't keep every requirement that is given in the law, then you are under a curse. So what are the requirements of the law? Well, we could read through them. We could talk about them. But here's the thing. There's a good chance that you're going to forget what the law says. The Pharisees were spending morning, noon, and night. These religious leaders were spending all day long talking about the law just so they wouldn't mess up and disobey. And they presented themselves as the most holy of all the people. But the thing is, you could talk about it all day long. You could go back and read all of the laws that were given. And you could do your best every single day to fulfill every single requirement and every single day you'd probably forget one you'd probably mess up you know we're given 10 major commandments uh, in exodus 20 and in uh, in the book of deuteronomy as well but then there were a whole host of other laws that were given and so the point that paul is making is if you live according to the law if you rely on the law for your salvation then you are going to miss one, and you are living under a curse. In fact, he says in verse 11, now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law. The reason why he says that is because he knows that he himself was a Pharisee. He knows that he himself had been trained as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He boasts, not uh, you know, kind of like tongue-in-cheek, but at, at one point he even boasts about how he was of, you know, the best of the best, the cream of the crop when it came to the Pharisees. He was the best at it. And he realized when he met Jesus, he realized that all of it was filthy rags. All of it was for nothing. None of it could give him the, you know, he could not earn his salvation from God by fulfilling the requirements of the law. So he can say this, as someone who had lived under the law and as someone who had done his best to fulfill every requirement of every law. And so he says in verse 11, now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law. In other words, no one is saved in this way. There's no one who can fulfill every requirement of the law. Let's just take Jesus boiling down the laws and the prophets into the first and second greatest commandment. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your mind. And secondly, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. I have violated those two commands this week. And if I'm honest with you, probably multiple times. And, and Paul would say the same thing. He said, I am the chief of sinners. I, I, we're talking about goody two-shoes, you know, Pharisee Paul. He says, no, in my, in, in my own strength, I am the chief of sinners. A lot of times we, we try to compare ourselves, don't we, as Christians? We, we think, well, you know, maybe I'm not quite as good as Mother Teresa or, you know, Billy Graham, right? 
Maybe I'm not quite as good, but I'm certainly not as bad as Osama bin Laden, okay? Um, you, you know, so I'm somewhere in the middle. Maybe God will look with favor at me. So I'm somewhere in there, okay? You know, if, if, if Billy Graham is a, is a nine, um, you know, because we can't put anybody as a ten, but, you know, if he's a nine, then, you know, maybe I'm around a six, you know? So I'm still kind of on the upper side of, of good, you know? I, I'm not a five or, or below. That would be bad. Um, you know, so sometimes we compare ourselves to other people, but the point is when you compare yourself to Christ and when you compare yourself to the law, you're a criminal. All right. And the Bible has a term for this sinner. And the Bible tells us in, in Romans three that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are a sinner. You, in some case over this last you know, 24-hour period, you have put yourself as more important than your neighbor. You have put yourself as more important than God. You haven't loved God with all your soul, with, with, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You haven't loved your neighbor as yourself. You've loved yourself. And you're a sinner. And if you are guilty on any one point of the law, then you're guilty of the whole thing. Any sin will place you in hell. That is the curse. See, if you rely on the works of the law, if you rely on a perfect record, you're never going to have a perfect record, which means you live under a curse. He says, uh, instead, verse 12, but the, law, but the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. And that's in Leviticus 18.5, is that we're, you know, when we're given the law, we're, we're supposed to live according to the law, uh, but it's supposed to point us to something greater than the law, and that is Jesus. You know, um, the law only brings judgment. You are never going to get perfection as you rely on the law. You're never going to do it perfectly. Jesus was the only one who could live a life of sinless perfection, where he was holy in every way, that he never violated the commands of God. But you and I, we can't do that on our own effort. We can't be perfect. Um, I, I've seen this in civil law, not just in biblical law, but, but in the world around us, right? You, you are probably very good law-abiding citizens. But do you know that you have probably broken an American law of, of some sort, maybe by omission or, or maybe, maybe by commission, but you have probably broken a law. Have you ever gone over 65 miles an hour in a 65 mile speed limit? Okay, if you've gone 66, then you violated, and you're probably gonna get away with it in civil law. But the point of the law of God is that he is so holy, he is so perfect, he is so righteous, that the equivalent of going 66 in a 65 would land you in hell. Not that he's the one giving you the 65 mile per hour speed limit, just to be clear. But the point is that the, just, just doing one thing wrong, violating the command of God, is worth putting you in eternal punishment for your sin. Now, I've had this happen to me before when I was living in Queens. You know, everywhere there in Queens is, you know, you have to park with meters, right? 
and you have to put money in the, in the slot. Well, um, there was this diner that I was going to in Ridgewood, and I parked the car. It was 8 o'clock, so it was, I, I, I looked at the signs. I, I tried to make sure I was reading the signs correctly, but the problem was I didn't realize that they had installed another sign that had more information about some other requirements just a little bit further down from where I parked. So I was reading this one sign, and it said that the meters weren't even in effect until 8.30. So I was like, okay, uh, it's eight o'clock, I'm going in, um, and, and I'll be out of here before then, so, so I don't need to pay anything. Well, the one that was ahead of that, it said this is all times only for unloading and loading. Um, so in other words, trucks would come by and they would unload, there was a grocery store there, there were some other businesses, so it was only for loading and unloading. Well, I don't know why they had that other sign there at all, because if you can't park there anytime, then why even have that other sign? But nevertheless, I, I didn't know that. I, I didn't see that sign. I didn't read that sign. I didn't know what the law required. And so I parked my car with a clear conscience. I parked the car at 8 o'clock. And at one point, the, the, the guy at the front counter was like, hey, is that your car? They're, they're putting a ticket. I was like, what? It's, you know, it's 8.15. Why, why would they put, be putting a ticket? So I went outside. Uh, too late to do anything about it, but I, I went outside and saw that I had gotten a ticket. So I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. And so this is what you do in Queens. If you've ever been in the city, you know that if you've already gotten a ticket, well, you might as well just leave your car there, right? So that's what I did. I mean, I've already gotten my ticket, so I left my car there. And I stayed a little bit past 8.30, but hey, I've already gotten my ticket. I didn't even know what, I didn't read the ticket, I just saw that I got a ticket. So I left my car there, and it passed 8.30. Somebody wrote me another ticket. And this time, it was because I was there past 8.30, which I knew that one, but because I had already received a ticket, I was like, I must, you know, oh well, you know, no, no worries, I can just leave it there. Now I have two tickets. So I get to the car, and I'm like, I'm really confused. So I, I open them up, and I read them, and I read the requirements of the law, and I look up, and I say, oh, yeah, I, I violated that law, and then yes, okay, clearly, because that was for that law, and now there's this law, that, I understand why they did that. I'm not happy about it, but yes, I, I am a sinner, okay? I am a criminal. I did violate those laws, and I did get the tickets. I got the penalty for what I did wrong, and it, it's not fun, you know? It's like 35, 40 bucks a, a ticket for stuff, stuff like that. And now there's two of them. And, and here's, here's what happens. Whether you've been in the church all your life or this is your first day, there are going to be laws. It, it doesn't matter if you don't know the law. You're guilty. You're a sinner. You have violated God's law, whether you know it or not. And maybe you don't get an orange sticker on your windshield every time you do it, but probably every single day, in some way, you are violating the law. And it's not just that you owe $40 because you spoke harshly to your spouse. It's not that you owe $35 because... You looked at something online that you shouldn't be looking at. You know, it's, it's not that you owe 50, 50 or $60 
because you stole something from work? Every violation of God's law, you are cursed. You are under the wrath and the judgment of God for every time you have sinned. See, I don't like getting those parking tickets, and especially two, because if you get two, and then you get another one a couple weeks later because you, you extended your time, order, like that starts to add up, $35, $70, whatever the math is, hundred-something dollars. Like it just keeps adding up. But in this case, it's already at its ultimate penalty. You, you can't pay it. You owe it, and that is the curse that we live under if you rely on the law. Because, you, first of all, you don't know what the law says. You, you didn't read the signs clearly. There's something you're violating every time you open your eyes. Every time you get up, you're probably doing something you shouldn't do. You're a sinner, and you are convicted. You are guilty as charged. And whether you know what the law says or not, you are a sinner. The law only brings judgment. And my ignorance of the law doesn't keep me from being penalized for breaking the law. But there's some amazing news in verse 13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, and this is from Deuteronomy 21, 23. It says, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. For Jesus to die on a cross, to, to be hung on a cross, on that Roman cross those 2,000 years ago, this, to the Jewish mindset, was horrific. It, it was just absolutely shameful for, for, for someone to be hanging on a Roman cross. This was a curse. The, to hang on a tree was a curse. And yet what Paul is saying and reminding these new believers in Galatia is he's saying to them, look, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And again, not that the law was a curse, but that if you rely on trying to do by your own works, do the works of the law, then you are under a curse because you have violated something in the law. And, and, and Paul is saying, look, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. He hung on a tree, which was a curse to the Jewish people. It was shameful to them. And yet Jesus willingly hung on that tree and died and paid the full penalty of your sin and mine by dying on the cross for us, for you. For me. And so we see the law's curse. We see what it brings. We see what it would take if we relied on working and doing and, and, and just trying to, to, to put our you know, hand to the plow and just fulfill every requirement that we can think of and, and do everything according to the law. And we can exhaust ourselves. Because Christ has redeemed us. He has already paid the penalty for our sins. We are no longer under the curse. We are in a covenant relationship with him. That brings us to the next part, which is the Lord's covenant. We saw the law's curse. Let's look at the covenant 
of the Lord. Now, what is a covenant, first of all? A covenant in the Old Testament had blessings and curses. Um, it, it was, In other words, it was sort of a list of, of things that we were going to do. In fact, one dictionary, a theological dictionary, says it this way, that a covenant is an agreement enacted between two parties in which one or both make promises under oath to perform or refrain from certain actions. An example of this is found in 2 Kings 23, verse 3, where it says, Next, the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant in the Lord's presence to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, his decrees, and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul in order to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. All the people agreed to the covenant. That was an example in 2 Kings 23. But I want you to notice something about the wording there. It says, next the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant. Now, that's a little tricky in English because it doesn't quite convey what was actually happening. The verb made a covenant is not really what they were doing. In ancient Israel, they didn't make a covenant. They didn't keep a covenant. They didn't uh, align their, the, themselves around a covenant. Instead, here's what they did. They cut a covenant. Okay, they cut a covenant. And that's the word in the original language is that they, that this king, he made a covenant. In other words, he cut a covenant. And the reason why I bring that up is because every covenant that was made was an agreement that had, if you do this, here are the blessings. Here are the benefits of what happens if you continue keeping this covenant. But if you don't keep the covenant, you don't keep your promise, and you you violate the terms of the covenant, then there are curses. So there are blessings and curses that are always attached to every covenant. But you cut a covenant with a person or as a nation. You cut this covenant by sacrificing a bull and cutting that, that, that bull in two pieces. And then the two parties of the covenant we're supposed to take that, that bull that has been cut into two pieces and they're supposed to walk through sort of the bloody pathway between these two you know, pieces of the carcass and the two parties that are agreeing to this covenant are supposed to walk through it and as they walk through it, they say to one another, they say, may what has happened to this bull happen to me if I violate this agreement. That was how you cut a covenant. You cut the covenant by cutting a bull in half and then, and then making this oath or this vow that what happened to this bull is what will happen to me if we violate the covenant. So there were blessings and curses when you cut a covenant. Now what's interesting about Paul's next argument is he brings up this covenant. He's bringing up the covenant that was made with Moses, but he's also bringing up a prior covenant. He's bringing up a covenant that was made with Abraham. And the covenant that was made with Abraham was made a little bit differently than what the ancient Israelites were used to. Um, it was more of a promise with no... Uh, it was a promise that was made to Abraham that did not have to be that there was nothing that Abraham had to do to earn this or, or to receive this promise. Whereas with the Mosaic Covenant, there were blessings and curses attached to it, 
And if you don't do the, the things that are said in the law, then you are cursed. If you do all of them, then you're blessed. But we've already said that nobody can do all of the, all of the things. So as we look at verse 14 and 15, Paul tells us his purpose. He says the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, and this is the first time he uses like this term of endearment. He's been saying, you know, oh, you foolish Galatians, like, what are you thinking? He's been referring to them like that, but now he says, brothers and sisters. I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. So what is he saying here? Paul is saying in verses 14 and 15 is that what God had already promised to Abraham was not negated when Moses came along. The promise that was made to Abraham continued through the time of the law and all the way up until Jesus. That Abraham truly is Father Abraham. That it's the promise that was made to Abraham that is binding on not just the Jewish people, but on all nations. Um, you know, the Judaizers, instead, they were arguing... And you've got to understand what they were, what, what they were, what Paul was addressing. They were arguing that since the law came after Abraham, uh, in around the 1450s BC, then the law had priority over the Abrahamic covenant, which means that they thought the law had priority over grace, over the promise that was made to Abraham. And so, in this passage, to refute this point. Paul is appealing to a permanently binding contract or will. And once this permanently binding contract has been enacted, then there's no one who is going to change it. Now, if you and I set up a will or we have some sort of a contract, then yes, in our society, yes, you can go back and, and change the terms or whatever. But here's what you can't do. If you set up a will and die and you've left your inheritance to your children and your grandchildren, then after you die, no one can come back in and say, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm the great, I'm the great grandson uh, of this person who passed away, and this is the, this is the will, but you know, I, I want to change all of it and, uh, and, and make it more favorable to me. See, nobody can change the will. The courts can't change the will. What the will says is what the will does. And that, that's, that is our, uh, that's the human illustration that Paul is using. Um, so I, I, let me put it this way. If a guy named Abe, for example, uh, last name Raham, uh, <laughs> creates a will for himself uh, and, uh, and then he dies, and then his grandson, let's call him, you know, Mo. Uh, Mo comes along, and he decides he wants to change the, the, the terms of the will or of the contract. He can't do that. All right, and so what Paul is saying is that Abe and Mo, and in his case, Abraham and Moses, uh, that Paul is saying that Moses didn't change any terms of the contract. It, nothing was changed in terms of the promises that were given to Abraham. And what were those promises? Verse 16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. 
Look at what it says in Genesis 12, 3. When God spoke to Abraham, he said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, this is interesting because this is a promise that God makes to Abraham. But it's not that Abraham would be blessed or cursed. Well, he does say he will be blessed. But it's not that Abraham, if he violates something, that he will be blessed or cursed. It's that the people, if they reject this promise, will be blessed or cursed. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. All right. I know it's getting kind of thick in the middle of chapter three here, but but the point that he's making is that Abraham's pro the promise to Abraham was different. There's something different and unique. But I also want you to notice in verse three of Genesis twelve is that all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you, right? So so the point that God made to Abraham, the promise that he made, was for all peoples to be blessed all the way from the beginning. This is Genesis chapter 12. This is the 12th chapter of the Bible. He's already making this promise that this is not just for one nation. This is for all of humanity, that they will be blessed through you. But then Paul gets back to his argument in verse 16. He says, he does not say, look at, follow Paul's argument here. He does not say, and to seeds... As though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. In Genesis chapter 12, the promise that is being made to Abraham is for Abraham and his seed, his offspring, his descendant. And it's not just referring, I think it's a double entendre written in, in, the, in, um, in Genesis but the double meaning here is that, yeah, it does actually it actually does apply to the nation of Israel. But the point that Paul is making is that now that Jesus has come, the point is that all of these promises are being fulfilled in Christ. It wasn't to the seed, the seeds as if in many people, but into his seed. The promise was spoken to Abraham and to Christ. So you almost see Abraham and Christ as bookends of what God is doing. And he, it, he does give the law, which we'll talk about next week, but the point is that Abra the promise made to Abraham was permanent. It was permanent. That through the seed, meaning Christ, through Abraham's seed, all the nations would be blessed. So this was a permanent promise. And so finally, not only coming to the end of Paul's logic here, but also to the end of our sermon and our time together today, we read in verses 17 and 18, Paul says, my point is this. Okay, so thank you, Paul. Thank you. you you're you're going to boil it down for us. You're going to give us your main point. Like, what is all of this about between Abraham and Moses and everything else? My point is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. Get, get what was just said there. See, the law did was given by God. But when God gave us the law, when he gave the Jewish people the law, he wasn't negating the promise. Do you understand that? It, it wasn't to say, uh, now the nations no longer matter. Now salvation can only come to the Jews. 
No, he's saying it's, it's always been for all people. And it's always been by faith. It's never been by the works of the law. Even the people who were day in and day out sacrificing for their sins in the Jewish customs and in, of the Jewish religion, they were doing so either by faith or by works. They were relying on the works. They were relying on the sacrifice. They were relying on circumcision. They were relying on doing the deeds and fulfilling the requirements. Or they were relying on faith. See, even as they did the sacrifice, there were some who truly had faith. It has never been on works. It's never been based on the law. It has always been, even in ancient Israel, even in the days of Jesus, it was only through faith that you could be saved. It's never been any different. This covenant is binding. It's permanent. It's never been changed. And what's beautiful about this, read the, the, last, the, the last part, verse 18, for if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. If you want to be saved this morning, if you want to be forgiven of your sins, then let me tell you that the law teaches us we are sinners. <laughs> the law teaches us I am never going to be able to fulfill the requirements of that law. But Jesus teaches us something greater. Jesus tells us that he gave his life to pay the penalty that you couldn't ever have paid. He gave his life. He shed his blood so that your sins could be wiped clean. That your criminal record before God could be expunged and just completely washed clean. Jesus did that willingly, even knowing that he would have to hang on a shameful, cursed cross. He became a curse. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So praise God that your salvation and mine does not depend on us, you know, just rigidly uh, relying on the requirements of the law, but it is based on grace. That this gracious provision, this promise that was given to Abraham all those years ago is the same promise he gives to you. That trust him, follow him by faith. Rely on him. Rely on the work that Jesus did on the cross rather than relying on your own strength. So if you're not a Christian, I, I just want to encourage you, you don't have to base you're standing with God based on comparison with other people around you. You don't have to base your standing with God on just working hard enough to earn his favor. You can't do it. You can't pay for your sins. And so again, if you are not a Christian, I encourage you to look to Jesus Christ as the one who has already paid the penalty for your sins. And, and he has offered himself to you as the acceptable payment for the sins that you have committed. And trust me, you have committed sins against God. You're guilty, but in Christ you can be made righteous. And if you're a Christian here, you've been living a Christian life 
for maybe many years, don't go back to relying on the law. It's not through circumcision. It's not through sacrifices. It's not through just, you know, doing my best. None of us can do our best. Your salvation is not based on that. Salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Trust him. Not only in your salvation, the moment of salvation, but in working out your salvation for the rest of your life. That you would rely on the work that he did on the cross and, as we're going to get to in the book of Galatians, and reliance on the Spirit. That we walk by the Spirit. We don't rely on the law. We rely on the Spirit of God. So there's a lot more that we're going to get to in the days ahead. So let's just pray that he will give us the ability to, to follow him. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the, the, the clear teaching in this passage of Scripture. Even, even though it may be a little bit thick at times and, and might take some, some extra thinking. But I pray, Lord, by your Spirit that you would teach us where we have been relying on the works of the law rather than relying on the Spirit of God. Lord, thank you for this precious promise of the blessings that come of those who trust just the same way that Abraham did, but now that we have Jesus, that we trust in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Lord, we thank you for the law. We're not abolishing the law. We're not getting rid of the law. We're not forsaking the law. We're not uh, trashing the law. We thank you for what you have accomplished through the law, but we thank you even more importantly for what you have given us by grace in faith in Jesus Christ alone. We thank you for what you have accomplished through him, and we thank you that we can live by faith, that we can have abundance of life, and Lord, that you just continue to teach us how we are to live according to your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name.